Hello, how are you? Welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. Ed Draper here, sports broadcaster in the UK. Hope you're well. Pitter patter of rain against my Velex window in my spare room come office as autumn perhaps sets in here in the west of England in Cheltenham. Thank you for hitting on the button. Really good to have you here. Thank you to the sponsors as ever, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. Check out Jason Briggs and his team through social media, BNO underscore Cheltenham, Twitter, Instagram, some cool videos about the Bangalore and equipment, um, but also the website and Possibly through that website, it can outline some of the options through Serene AV, not just the Bang & Olufsen fine equipment. Those boys and maybe girls can source you, but just the, um, I guess, the, the full panorama of, of options in terms of home entertainment, big screens, etc. They can give you a bespoke quote across all the top brands that fits your vision, your budget. Now, Jason, still triumphant after AFC Cheltenham, his team won. I think he called himself the Pirlo of, of Gloucestershire. So we'll see how that works out. Reference to the former Italy Juventus midfielder, of course. Um, thank you as well to Cytoplan, food-based supplement company, not far from here, actually housed in Hanley Swan, the west of England, just uh, as you approach the hills, the Malvern Hills. And they are offering a discount ongoing with the podcast, which I appreciate. We've been taking the supplements as a family for 20 plus years. I take the Immune Complete 2 every day, which is a holistic multivitamin or vitamin, which includes vitamin D or uh, vitamin D, you may call it, depending on where you're listening to this from. Um, which is crucial as we head into those winter months where the UV rays are pretty scarce, certainly in this part of the world in, in the UK. And if you go to Cytoplan, you can get a discount with the code DRAPER10R, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. hope you can't hear that beeping coming through. It's a big uh, lorry delivering some uh, work to a construction site, some some uh, resources there. Um been busy around here actually building site at the moment so that's the cytoplan.co.uk for that discount c-y-t-o-p-l-a-n.co.uk and on that note of vitamin d you're going to be speaking to my dad dr mark draper who has worked as a consultant for cytoplan we do pay for our, our supplements i always hasten to add as a, a discounted rate like the rate we're offering you actually but it's um, something that's pertinent, I think, over winter, not only in the context of COVID-19, where it's exposed perhaps the importance of, of vitamin D and perhaps how deplete a lot of us are in the Northern Hemisphere in particular. We're all very clothed, even in the summer, we're not getting that natural light from the sun. I mean, in the winter, it's very difficult, isn't it? When it's chilly out there um, to, to get that. So that'd be interesting to speak to the da my dad soon, general practitioner and also micronutritionist dr mark draper uh, another one as well speaking of family is a project we're working on attic box audio which is where i sit down with members of the public typically an older generation maybe 65 plus to reminisce about their life story just ask questions and get on a quality recording of their life story from childhood up to the present day very loose and just through their own eyes not a factual sort of chronological breakdown of it in any way not sort of like ancestry.com or anything like that it's more of a just a uh, their version of, of their life because it was sparked by my wife and I talking about wanting to hear the voices of our grandparents in particular during the lockdown and how I'd love to hear my granddad's voice. I came from the northeast, left school at 14, worked in London as a painter and decorator all his life. The House of Parliament had a, just a fascinating story but a fascinating person and would love to hear his story. It gets a bit misty through the sort of uh, sands of time doesn't it sometimes those recollections. He's passed away when I was 14 so it's a long time now. And uh, yeah, which is an idea that we'd like to offer to people. And you can check check it out at drapermedia.co.uk. 
forward slash Attibox Audio or just go to drapermedia.co.uk and find out more there. And that's Attibox Audio. This is the podcast with Adrian Britton. It's a fascinating look at semi-professional sport where competition is often professional outfits who's, who are doing a job, the managers, the coaches, the players, but you're often having to juggle that with a daytime job, as was Adrian Britton and his players at Bath City as they went to National League, the fifth tier of English football. And AD's got a really good story and basically <laughs> just worked day and night on his day job and the football. And uh, it's, a, it's a really cool story. His passion for football shines through. And I just wonder if not doing it full time as a job helps that intrinsic joy. Nonetheless, you find out here because this is the, the wonderful... Adrian Britton, AD, good morning. Good to see you. You're on Julie's iPad, but we're, we're connected, which is great. <laughs> How are you doing? Good morning. Yeah, I'm well, really well. Yeah. Good to see um, you. It's, it's five years, isn't it, since we, we met recently at the, the Cheltenham Town Ipswich game, the stirring comeback from the Robins against the, the Tractor Boys, which was good fun, introduced by a mutual friend, Chris Coley. And yeah. what was fascinating was just talking to you not only about football as a former manager of Bath City operating in the, the fifth tier of English football, but just your, your successful business career. And I feel that's been a not a unique necessarily, but a relatively unique space, isn't it, that you've occupied between having a successful business career and a, and a, and a pretty successful football career, but must have been challenging. How do you reflect on, on that time five years out from, from that job in particular? I think it was, actually. I think um, for, for a long time in, in, in the two careers, my hero was actually uh, Jack Rowell, who... Um, managed uh, managed Bath Rugby Club and also managed England. Yeah. Um, all, and at the same time, had a, a, a major business career as a. I th he was a director in Dolgetty, and uh, wow. so a, a major company uh, ended up um, managing, coaching, coaching in England RFU, and uh, yeah. So so I often thought of that along along the way so when when it got to the stage that in sort of 210 211 we 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 ended up in in conference national um with probably 22 full-time sides and I think two of us part-time mm. at that moment in time I was probably devoting um uh, a 50-hour week to to, to to work and uh and probably a 30-hour week to to football yeah and uh, Marry the two together was difficult, um, no. challenging, to say the least. But when you've a, a love for each of them, and particularly the football, then it, it's anything's possible. And being married as well, you know, it must have been a challenge well, for the family side of things. Have, have, having a partner and having a having a, a, a family, yeah, it is. It, it's always been it's always been challenging. Yeah, and and it's interesting. We we go back to the start because what's this podcast is called is sport and life and I always find it interesting the interplay between the two you know is sport just an escapism and entertainment or are there lessons that we learn from sport either watching participating or observing and how they inform other parts of our life and I think your story is great in that because we've talked just casually the, the, the moments that we've spoken about your business career and how perhaps that helped you in football and maybe vice versa in terms of giving you confidence in the, the business world being a, being a coach in football where did it all start for you though was football always prominent from you in the start because I know you, you said you began with K KPMG in the business world in the 1970s yeah it um so uh background really came from working class uh, family in in in, in Bristol um, lucky enough to get to a scholarship to a, a, a school and went on to university in London and from there um probably under pressure from my parents <laughs> um because of their backgrounds always to to look for a professional job um, uh, but but really 
from day one, the, the only interest I had really was in football and cricket. That was my major love, it, it, mm. you know, uh, both sports. Um, spent a lot of time um, in my earlier years playing football, went to a rugby school, unfortunately. Um, and at first opportunity, when I came out of university, I went and played, um, went and played some football, um, played, played at university, played a little bit of Isthmian League as it was then, then football. And uh, at that time, I ended up at KPMG in London, where I started um, my, my business career, um, qualified as chartered accountant, late 70s, early 80s. And, uh, and then I had decisions to make, because at that point in, in, in time, you've got a business career in front of you. Um, I decided at a pretty early stage, I didn't really want to be a partner, partner in a major, major practice. Um, and really underlying everything was just my love of sport. Yeah. And so it was, it took me a little while to work out in, in which direction I went. Um, uh, but throughout, throughout the eighties, I stayed in accountancy initially, um, when the late eighties approached, um, and there was a, a recession at that point in time, I made my mind up that I was going to go out and do some corporate finance work or whatever, probably just at the wrong time. <laughs> um, and, uh, and meanwhile, meanwhile, I played, I played football, uh, when I could, um, I did by then I moved back to Bristol and I started coaching a, um, a Western league club, um, uh, following a friendship, particularly with, uh, two people, one being. Uh, Jerry Sweeney, who formerly played for Bristol City when they were in the old first division in the um, in the 70s and 80s. And he encouraged the coaching aspects. And for a short time, also Bobby Gould, who'd, yeah. um, who'd then managed, he'd managed Coventry at the time, um, finishing that job. He actually came at a ripe, ripe old age of about approaching 40, played for us for a bit and said, no, you do the coaching. And uh, certainly meant to me and... Uh, and we, we crossed paths quite a few times, you know, falling on from that. He's a proper character, isn't he? Anyone that's listened to Bobby on the radio is just, a, he's just larger than life, just unique. He's a massive, massive character. And, um, and he's a huge enthu enthusiasm for the game. Mm. Massive enthusiasm for the game. And that being, and that, and that being the case, um, yeah, encouraged me, encouraged me to coach. And I thought, you know, it was around that time that I then thought, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm clearly never, never at this ripe age going to play professional football, but I love to, you know, coach or manage at the best level I could. Yeah. And that then became a goal. And so um, I sort of managed in, um, in, in the early 90s throughout the Western League and got a couple of promotions or whatever. Mm. Um, and, and then along the way, met various other people who, um, you know, Southern League and Conference, um, who I it, at times when spare did a bit of coaching for and and the like and the football side of things began to develop I did my early licenses um, which was then in, uh, basically prelim intermediate then uh, they became outdated so I did uh, a C and a B license but was never able to take an A license at that time because I couldn't take the time off work to do it yes um, and meanwhile meanwhile on the business business side of things I um I fell upon a business really um, coming out of recession, which was a property-based business, um, particularly involved in incineration. Um, and the people involved in it, it, it started the business. They had the idea for the business, but they didn't have the ability to structure it and run it. So uh, 
basically with some uh, with some venture capital, I took that on, took that challenge on um, with another guy, and we started building an embryonic business, which grew over 25 years into something fairly, fairly major and sold in 216 for hundreds of millions. Wow. Uh, most, of that money, most, most of that money went to uh, the venture capitalists. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, build, building, uh, but building houses, was it? Is that with new, new developments? No, yeah. So it was specialised. It was hospital waste incinerators, um, uh, crematoria and cemeteries and anything in that that sort of field which filled a hole really from some of the work that the councils and the hospitals and the like did so um yeah so I was in, in, involved in that um and it was pretty full-on business um but but it did uh, but it did allow me because I had a degree of control of my own destiny to when I needed to take time off um for football which gradually which gradually became very much the coaching and the managing became the center of my life yes um, and uh, and then really, I, I realised realised that if I was going to go anywhere, I had to take a plunge and you know get in Southern League or Conference or whatever. And um, I was very friendly with very friendly with a chap called uh, John Relish, who he I think he's all time record appearance holder for Newport County when they were in their old demand when they were uh, played about six hundred times for them. He managed them in the old um, league before they went out back in the back in the back in the eighties. And uh, he was he was then managing it, uh, uh, just about to go to Merthyr Tidville to manage who And Merthyr had been quite quite a big club. I mean, in the yeah. 90s, they, in the Cup Winners' Cup, uh, you know, famously beaten Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, you could see it. The, the remnants were there of a big club, but they they struck quite difficult financial times. And uh, so I ended up. Um, he was there originally for a year with Andy Beatty. Uh, Andy left and um, I joined him and the two of us ran it for a couple of years. And we got a promotion in the Southern League and came in the playoff finals, I think, in, in the Southern League Prem, as it was then. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, the club, in spite of its pretty good support, um, I think probably it overspent over the years, sure. you know, to, just to stay in the Southern League Prem. This was just before Conference South and North was formed. Um, they probably overspent. They'd have players coming in on loan from around the country, and uh, it it really had to go back to basics and cut its budget badly. So, I had as we were pretty well at the top of the Southern League, we thought, well, mm. this is the time to go. We don't want to go back and you know go through that journey journey again. And uh, and lo and behold, within a within a few weeks, um, there was contact from Bath City, who were in the Southern League at that moment in time. Close and to home said, as well was that. It was like well, nice and close, close to home for me. Certainly, it was. Uh, John lived in John. John lived in Newport. Um, I lived in South Gloucestershire. So um, yeah, yeah, it's really, really, really suited. Um, and it was a club that had been sort of struggling a little bit in the in the Southern League for twelve or thirteen years, um, and it seemed like a seemed like a good opportunity. And uh, and we went there uh, in two thousand and five. In the first year, we were runners-up in the Southern League, but didn't go up in the playoffs. And the second year, we won it um, and went into Conference South. So um, uh, at that point in time, Conference South had been formed um, for uh, a couple of years. Um, it was in its embryonic state. A lot of London clubs in it, and well, as there are now, but there, there were um, equally just a, f- a, f- a few more clubs in the area. We had sort of Western Supermare and 
and, and Gloucester or whatever, who ultimately went into the northern section. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we spent a year or so in that, um, at which time uh, John decided to pack up. He'd had enough of management. He'd managed for a, a really good spell at all levels. And um, I was joined by, joined by Lee Howells, who um, Lee made his name at Cheltenham, played for Steve Cottrell, uh, yeah. and went, went on the journey with Steve Cottrell from <laughs> um, uh, Southern League, Southern League to, to Div 1 at Cheltenham. Yeah, Lee, and, wow. So, so he'd been on the journey and he came along as uh, assistant to me and and within within two years we got them promoted again into international league yeah um, so yeah that was that was the the what, football story what, what, um, with, with those parallel lines when you're building a successful business and presumably you're making astute and pragmatic decisions on finance when you're in your regular business what did you make of the, the business world do you have a different mindset because there's a chap called out of the podcast called mark nielsen who's got a successful recruitment business based in sirencester i believe and yet he's he's yeah. managed boxing shows and you know it's like he wants he's got he's very ambitious in that world but he says i have to have a very different mindset about profitability and things like that when i'm putting on a boxing show then did you i mean did you have to sort of literally put the phone down and say i'm not at work anymore and, and actually we will overpay for this player or, or we'll, we'll make a sort well, of decision yeah Yes, it, it was. It, I mean, once we were at the stage that we were sort of about to go out of Conference South and, and in International League, and I recognised that was full time, I, I then had to really look hard at my time and how I managed it. Mm. And, and the, way, the way it was managed, um, really, I, I, I got up very, very early and would do probably an hour and a half on football um, in the morning yeah. at seven o'clock or whatever. And um, we'll take that hat off and go into work mode, um, go into work mode uh, at 8.30 or the like. But I would always have a couple of goals to achieve throughout the day. I'd have my list. These were goals to achieve. So if it was chasing players or whatever, I'd make sure that I went for a walk at lunchtime and had, had the ability to, to, to speak to a player or whatever for half an hour. And then I'd put the hat, hat back on at six o'clock and uh, we, we'd be talk, talking football again. Um, it's it's they are two um, uh, very very different businesses. But what it allowed me to do at quite an early stage was not look at the football, but yeah. look at the club, look at the potential. Um, a lot of the time, it's not always the, the key indicator, but a lot of the time, the history of the club doesn't lie. Mm. Most clubs, most clubs have uh, their median, their level. Yeah, they have their. You can look at most clubs and say, based on their geography, where they are, their fan base, yeah. their history, you know, where should they actually be in the league? Yeah, and and you, you you can see that you can see that so easily a lot of the time when when you're looking at most clubs. If if you put most clubs in front of me in the pyramid, I I, I you know I'd have a good guess at telling you where they are. Some of their supporters probably wouldn't agree with me. <laughs> where, but, where it, it, it's actually, also it's also culture as well, isn't it? Because you mentioned Bath City, but I presume you wouldn't look at the population of Bath, but you'd think, well, actually, there's a there's a rugby passion here that burns bright. Very similar to, to Gloucester. We live in this part of the world where it's uh, it's a different different yeah, than other parts of the world. Yeah, of, yeah, of course. And 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 in the case of Bath, whilst in their history back, you know, in in, in the fifties, sixties, it right into the seventies when they actually won the Southern League with Brian Godfrey, 
you know, they had some reasonable gates at that time, but the gates then fell off a cliff really with the, with, with the rugby. And yeah. they've struggled as a club to, to get that back. And a little bit like Gloucester, you know, in, in, in much the same way, competing with the rugby club. Yeah, no, very, very difficult. But you have to look at the club and, you know, that I would say all these clubs, Gloucester, Bath, whether you're in the Football League, Cheltenham Town, your Yeovils, et cetera, et cetera. They've all got a level. And if, you, if, if, you, if, you, if it's badly managed at the top, chairman, board, and badly managed through the manager and the coaching, you know, they could fall below that level by a division or even two divisions. Yes. But, if you, but if you really achieve, if you really achieve, um, you can take it a division or in the case of probably someone like Yeovil, mm. Burton Albion, Wickham Wanderers recently, yeah. they've gone probably a couple of divisions beyond their true level. Yes. Uh, you know, of sustainable football. And, uh, and, and how important at that point is it for there to be patience with the manager? Because there's almost a sort of victim of your own success. We hear that all the time, don't we? Of, of raised expectations. We're actually getting a team up that, as you say, is beyond its location, beyond its geography, beyond there, its family. There, there is, there, therein, lies, therein, lies the pro, therein lies the major problem. Mm. You know, um, in football, you need one of two things. You either need some cash, you need some money so you can go out and be competitive and spend, or you need time. Mm. And unfortunately, whilst if you go back 20 years ago and looked at managers and coaches, a lot of people were given time. Obviously, the, the, the famous case is Alex Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. That hadn't won anything in four years, you know, in a club of that size. Yeah. So, but, but they recognised something in him where they were. They liked the style of football, the enthusiasm of it, and they, they stuck with him and the rest is history. And, uh, but I think probably um, with the increased um, uh, coverage of football generally since the Premier League 94, mm. I think um, football coverage is so much greater now. You know, when I was younger, you know, in the 70s, you got match of the day on a Saturday night <laughs> and the big match on a Sunday and you didn't miss them. No. And there was really else to watch. But, but I'm coming home from a football match on, on a Saturday now and I'll listen to a radio show, a, a, a talk-in or whatever. And, and people who have never coached or never managed will have a lot of information, a lot of information, about their football club, its tactics, the way it plays. Yeah. They, the, the footage is so great. Yeah. It doesn't, you've got some time to look at it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist a lot of the time to work out tactically what people are doing, etc. So yeah. everyone has an opinion. And because everyone has an opinion now, time, time is not something that's regularly given to managers. Yes, but it's, it's also, I mean, Michael Duff is well aware of this at Cheltenham at the moment, isn't it? It's very difficult mm. to be in a division where you don't actually belong in the division financially because you can't pay the wages that other clubs are playing. Fundamentally, in any business, that is a, a big issue. Yeah. If, you, if you have a business where you can't pay your, your executives to play with other businesses. So, so the, position is, the, 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 the position is, people won't like it, but the true position is, in my, Michael, Michael's case, Incidentally, Michael Duff, I think, um, from the moment he came into Cheltenham, did really well. I think he was left a, a group of players which were pretty unbalanced. Um, uh, he, he was overloaded in certain areas, um, but, but it wasn't a balanced squad in any way at all. And he pretty early on hit on his three at the back. He, he pulled Tozer out of a more advanced position, um, put him in a sweeping position. And 
and that really changed them. I mean, he then got a very, very settled, settled back three, settled on his uh, on his wing backs, and from there he made them really quite an effective attacking unit as well. So did particularly well. Um, yeah, now uh, Petos has left, hasn't he? That's but that's a reality of the situation, it, I suppose. It, that case, but going back to that situation, he's now got the mark. Mm. Yeah, they they are fi financially at a level above probably where they should be. Um, and what happens? He'll have to he'll have to do particularly well, more than anything probably in the transfer market over the next couple of years to keep them there. Yeah. And he's deserved he's deserved through his performance to 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 probably manage it at a better level. Mm. And that's something that he's very open about. It says that he has to have that ambition because if he didn't have the ambition to manage at a high level, he would be unambitious at Cheltenham and wouldn't be thrusting all the time. So it's a win-win. And that's an interesting relationship, isn't it, between coach and club, that sense of... Because people talk about loyalty, but there has to be ambition on both sides. And often the manager has to be... It's, able to think it's, it. very, diff it's very difficult. You can't, really, you can't really win because in the situation, say, going back to my situation, obviously I was part-time. In a, mm. I got them into a full-time league. We did very, very well for one season. In, in the first season, came tenth with the side we had. Um, no one had seen a lot of the players before. Um, we become the top part-time side in the country, and um, in in two two eleven. But in that summer, a we lost four players to to better clubs, league clubs. Yeah, um, lost four players, which were which it taken a few years to accumulate. Were so were pretty irreplaceable. The club was on its knees financially because really it couldn't afford all the costs, not just the, the wages, which were probably the lowest in the league anyway, but mm. the travel costs, everything that went with full-time football, it couldn't afford. And, and the next season really was a major struggle and we ended up, uh, ended up being, being relegated. Now, a lot of people would say, a lot of people would say, well, that was a failure, wasn't it? The <laughs> truth of the matter was, Possibly it could have been my biggest achievement because we held the club together financially mm. and we did so over the next two or three years. Uh, we actually held, held it together financially and now the supporters have taken over and it's gradually beginning to, 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 to flourish again. Yes. So, but people would not recognise that. They would probably say, well, you did very well in that season. You got promoted. You did well in that season and then you failed. But the truth <laughs> of the matter is that's not quite true. How did yeah, that, that, that space in football is fascinating because I've had conversations with Cheltenham Town players from the 1990s who turned down full-time option at Cheltenham because they had careers and things like that. They were late 20s, early 30s. And that's yeah. an interesting land that you lived in, isn't it? What were the considerations like about going full-time? Because presumably some of the players wouldn't necessarily have wanted to be full-time players if they were successful. Well, no, I mean, one of the lads you're talking about there at Cheltenham Town, I'm, I'm friendly with to this day, Jason Eaton, he'd been... Mm -hmm. He'd been playing and he and as soon as the side went full time, most of the lads just signed on the dotted line for Steve Cottrell. Um, and uh, Jason decided he would go and he ended up going part time for Yeovil and he ended up playing. He played for me in Merthyr for a little bit. Um, so I understand the problems. He had a very good job. And and you, you have to remember at that level, the truth of the matter is and probably going into Div 2 as well. If lads have got a reasonable job mm. and they're part time. They're going to make, make better money than they're going to make by yeah. football. Yeah. In Div 2, you know, um, or, or the conference, there are some that do very well out of it. And there are some very, very good wages along the way. Certain clubs, um, often booming bus clubs, who come in and have some money for, for, for three or four, four years and then it seems to disappear again. Yeah. Um, but 
but most players are better off at that level. It's not until really you get at the top of top of Div 2 or into Div 1 that you have the chance of earning some wages that are going to actually begin to set you up. And it's a big, uh, consider- it's a big consideration if you're giving advice to a player, isn't it? Because if they have family commitments and, it, and also the football career is a, is a short and fleeting one, it's, there has to be something to come afterwards. So there is a real decision to make there, unless you've got something on the side or something that you've prepared for for the next stage. Yeah, I've always... I've always tried to advise players, you know, realistically what they should do. I mean, if they, if they, I've had a lot of lads go into the football league um, over over the years, and if they've really got nothing other than their football, yeah. uh, they come through academy and they've always been trying. Really, this is their goal. Then yes, they have to go for it. They have to go for it. It's um, uh, because there isn't an alternative. But quite a few lads have got, say, sports science degrees. I've even had a few with business degrees and whatever who really could have a career elsewhere you know and also some lads who um who have been in the pro game they've come out they can get a complete education paid for by the pfm um and 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 they're doing they're doing particularly well really by having a full-time job and still earning money probably at conference level they could have a part-time job until they're, you know, if they look after themselves, early 30s. It's a bit more difficult these days physically to do all your training work with a full-time job, obviously. Yeah. Because even in the conference, standards of fitness have become a, a lot better. Yes. Um, so, so a little bit more difficult, but they can still make a, a, a good career uh, mm. for themselves that way. Do you have to be more disciplined in your business life, do you suppose, for players now, if they're their day jobs, the nutrition and everything, they have to factor that into their working day if they're playing well, at conference they, level? Yeah, they do. And you can see you can see the difference over the last five or ten years. Massive, you know, at that top top of part-time football, um, most most of the lads have got have got fitness levels that aren't, you know, ridiculously, uh, you know, that far away from from, from the pros at the same level and you see that regularly when you do get a part-time side come into uh, national league they can be playing against mostly full-time sides and and a lot of the time you know the fitness levels don't look that different if they've got a good pre-season pre-season yeah. <clears throat> but but players generally um but players generally nevertheless um really have to work hard to look after themselves mm-hmm. strictly on there you know if they're working you know to, to, to have a good diet, et cetera, is quite difficult, you know, yeah. in a job when you're and et cetera. And uh, yeah, rest, rest as well, AD, I guess. Rest is key, isn't it, for professional athletes? So if, you, if you're if you rest and sleep and things like that are harder sometimes if you've got a job. Well, absolutely. And you have to remember that it's an age where a lot of them will end up having young families as well. So, so you know, it's, it's, it's very, very demanding. Mm. Um, you know, I myself... Um, it, in my business and football career, there was a time over probably um, seven, eight, nine, ten years when um, I was putting so many hours into it, I really had no other life at all. Yeah. Um, no do anything, no time really to go on holiday. You'd be doing your major work in the summer preparing for the football. Um, and, you know, no other interests outside the, the football, football and the business. It, it um, But there's only a time, you know, a given period of time you can put that number of hours on um, because ultimately I did have a period over a couple of years when I sold the business in 2016, I packed up football where, where it really hit me yeah. in terms of 
my health and uh, I had pneumonia and the like and and it was a it was a reaction to you know sustained effort over such a long period of time but luckily you know got through that fine and re-energized and uh um but you know yeah it, it, it can be very very tough trying to do the two things from a player's point of view and obviously yeah. it was from, from my point of view at a higher level what one thing that's shone through when i met you and it does now talking about is your passion for football your enthusiasm do you ever reflect that that you are glad you didn't become a full-time manager because it's interesting what extrinsic rewards do isn't it when people become a job and it's that you, you're doing it for a pay packet solely do you feel that that would have dimmed your passion at all do you see that with people in full-time football that it can become they can lose no, a little bit of love oh i don't regret it in the slightest but but the story is um unfortunately so my goal from quite an early age in coaching in the 90s was to be a full-time coach or manager. That's what I wanted to be. That was always the goal. Yeah. Um, and the opportunity actually came up um, at the end of 2-10-11 season. So um, basically I was not um, with a non-league paper and whatever. That year, Steve Evans had won the league with Crawley. Terry Brown had taken Wimbledon up. Went Wimbledon up. And um, in there awards program I was uh, no, no, number three that year yeah. as part-time part manager and as a result of that I was offered I was offered uh, two jobs one in the league um, and one with a side in the conference national which is now in the football league um, mm. and and at such an early stage I simply said look you know this can't go any further I'm sorry I'd love to but financially where the business was at the time um, it was in such a good place that I knew that I had to see it out to a, an appropriate sale. Sure. Um, which actually took another four or five years. And, and I had to do that really for, um, uh, for, for my family as much as anything else and you know, protect them for, 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 for generations. And uh, um, I, I did that, but it was with a very, very heavy heart because that was really my goal um, for 15 or 20 years and having got there having had to turn those opportunities down was um, uh, very very difficult for me yeah. uh, I'd ha I had hoped that if I sold the build uh, the bit the um, business at a later date I would get another opportunity but you know when the day came in 15 16 or whatever um, unfortunately opportunities came up but they weren't great opportunities which were exciting yeah. so so, so, yeah, it was a sensible decision to make. Um, it was a sensible decision to make, but it wasn't uh, a great moment for me. No, it's a lot. It's not a certain path. Any any manager's job is it when you when you take it? So there's a big. It's a lot to. It's a lot to gamble. It, yeah, it, it it is. I mean, I would have. Um, yeah, I I couldn't do it at that point in time where I was financially for the risk of a, a probably a two year contract in a lower league club, which. Um, which I could have lost my job in in 12 months. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, just not not possible. But would I have liked to have done it? Um, <laughs> uh, my, my heart tells me, yeah, you know, that was my, I think everybody gets an opportunity in any walk of life if they do well. And that was my opportunity. And, and I had to turn it down. And it was, uh, it was difficult, really. And I've, you know, thought about that so many times since because, you know, as I go to games, I've done a bit of scouting for people and the like. Mm. Um, you know, I often put myself in the manager's position and think, God, well, I would love to be doing that now. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, unfortunately, 
doesn't go away. But not, <laughs> nice not to have the stress, though, I suppose. You can do it vicariously without the, the pressures. Well, it is, it is. But, but what you're forgetting, Ed, that, you know, um, yes, we love the football, um, uh, but we also, we also enjoy, um, enjoy the, the dressing room, the group mm-hmm. of lads, the characters. Uh, I mean, my greatest strength as a manager is managing people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've grown a business over the years um, to employ three or 400 people. And um, my greatest strength really was I had a financial background, so I knew what the, the parameters were. Um, but my greatest strength was managing those people yeah. and getting them right as a team. And I think, um, you know, if you look at, I look at my own track record in managing and, 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 and the most important aspects of the management job are recruitment, coaching, manage, management of people probably not in that order it probably is probably i always think recruitment if yeah. you don't get your recruitment right you're in trouble whatever <laughs> happens yeah um, you know actually managing people when we, we 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 mentioned previously um you know uh mickey mellon and phil denton's book um 100 days first 100 days you know when you when you look at that people people have now realized how you must manage everybody in the club and manage your club and uh, and and those management skills now, um, people are are thinking hard about those. Gone are the days where you can go in and be a dictator in the club and say this is what we're going to do. You know, you actually have to you actually have to um, look at all aspects of the club and consider can consider those things and, and knit the thing together. And then probably the coaching the coaching obviously is important, but it's not as important. I don't think as the other two aspects. No. Once you get to the of levels. And you really get into, say, the champ in the Premiership in international football. Yes, then it is quite clearly. Um, but in the lower leagues, if you look at if you look at what what what's happened tactically, a lot of the time it's fairly rudimentary stuff. And uh, yeah. as I said earlier, there's plenty of people there who watching huge footage have picked up picked up on that. Yeah, the psychology of it. It's fascinating that about getting to know the individuals when you come into a club. Is that where there are parallels between football? And the business when when you're getting to know the team, are there similar? Is it different personalities in football to outside, or are there a set of personalities that you see both in the business world and in the football world? And it's identifying the type of person and and that crossover. I, I think it's. Um, I think there are huge similarities. You are judging people from day one. What I would say is that I think that going into a football dressing room with 20 or 25 lads between between the ages of say 19 and 35 Mm. um, if you can stand up and control those lads and speak to them and hopefully obtain their respect I think it makes some aspects of going in a boardroom um, really quite easy where you're prepared yeah you're very prepared for the situation Um, you have your board pack that's been prepared for you etc etc you've read it the night before or you're going in to make a presentation to people and you know the subject matter really quite well. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it makes it relatively, I, I found, relatively easy because I just always look at the dressing room and think, well, could these guys control that dressing room? Yeah. And it's about mirror imaging people a lot of the time. You're, you know, if, 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 if you've bought a board where people are at a very, very high level, and they're all solicitors, chartered accountants, they're all wearing suits or whatever. Yeah, 
yeah they're all yeah you know it, it to to actually mirror you you have to mirror image those people and equally if you've got a group of lads if you've got a group of lads who who these days um are, bring out the crystal <laughs> yeah, absolutely from you know uh from all walks of life um from all um, uh, very, very diverse, all ethnic groups, etc. And you, you have to, you, you, you have to actually recognise that, and you, you, you have to mirror image those lads, and and you have to get a, a relationship with them, mm. and uh, and because they are so different, um, that's not easy. But but I think the people who who do that, I think the people who do that, I think you can see it. You can almost see it with the managers. Um, in watching just watching a yeah. game and how late to them yeah. when they when when they're in their warm-ups and when they come off the field you can see you know whether they're tactile you know what what, yeah. they, what their reaction to it, them it's different, different cultures now the top level isn't it as well you've got south americans spanish italian so so, so it so now so now it is a it, you know you can see it's a great skill and i think um I think it's it's really interesting in in uh, Mickey Mellon's book when he he talked particularly um, he talked a lot obviously about um, Ferguson and Wenger but the managers he he'd spoken to more recently were um, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer um, um, Sam Allardyce um, in particular and uh, he it's really interesting how those guys had. You know, thought the processes out, and and how they, you know, thought early early in their tenure as a manager, how they yeah. got to get close to certain people, and and they'd known before they'd gone into a club by researching it, who their group leaders were in the dressing room and who they were going to approach and get on their side initially. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, a lot a lot of managers do that these yeah. days. They reckon something that. It's happened for a long, long time in, say, rugby, um, and I think football's picked up on it. Um, mm. And uh, and yeah, it's an important aspect of it. And I think no longer can you just go in and treat the whole group the same because everyone is so diverse and different. It's, and it's interesting how those, they approach the building of a culture. I mean, we, we sort of made fun of Arsene Wenger being a Frenchman raiding the French league, but he built a nucleus of whereas a French player coming into that dressing would not have been um as sort of i guess daunting as it may have been in previous generations full of the english the roast beefs or whatever they call they call us but and then similarly we, we see david Moyes, who's this tough glaswegian is building a little czech republic enclave in in east london but that makes sense because if you go into a country if i was going to somewhere there's another english person or a few english players there or, or workers or whoever journalists it'd be someone that would ease you in well, the fascinating, the fascinating thing that you talk about, David Moyes, you know, I said about Sam Allardyce, etc. You know, you think of big, brutal centre halves when they've yeah. played, but they've really been diligent, thinking people, uh, and the way they've structured their managerial careers. I mean, uh, both of them have really looked at the detail to yeah. it, it, it's a game, which a lot of other managers haven't, and hence they've been, they've had longevity and success, yeah. um, which fascinating really because you wouldn't it's not what you'd originally perceive of them what, what, you know? what no you wouldn't and one thing that it really comes to mind because last night my daughter she's very coordinated she can kick with both feet she can throw and catch but she's been very reluctant she's six years of age to play any organized sport does ballet dance but yeah no money but we went last night to a rugby club near us 
they've got a sort of decent men's team, but they've got various age groups. And she took part in the uh, the youngest age group there. And, and she it was a female coach and she gave her this role. She said to her, look, you know, you can go and look after this little boy who's a couple of years younger than you. And you could share and my daughter's eyes lit up. And then she was saying to her, well, if you come back, you know, you can get daddy to take you to the store and, and get you an outfit. And I know this is a cliche thing, but she was actually playing upon knowing my daughter instinctively, what my daughter's instincts were. My daughter didn't want to go. She does not want to be told you know, I was watching the, the male coaches with the boys. It's like, go run down there, tackle this, do 50 yeah. press-ups. She's not interested in that. And it's interesting because Phil Neville said when he coached the England women's team, he said, whoa, you don't tell them anything. You have to sit down, explain everything. And meetings are not 10 minutes, they're three hours. And the difference, the nuance between the male brain and the female brain and, and how we respond to authority is, is very yeah. interesting. It's, it has to be a lot no. more collaborative and it has to be, you have to be part of it. You have to have a role. I don't know if you've had any experience of that because you obviously coach men's football, but then in the office you had women. Well, well, when, when, uh, when I did my B licence, hmm. um, one of the coaches suggested at that time, look, you know, uh, look at youth football, coach some youth football, go and coach some women's football. And I, I coached some women's football for, for a few months and, uh, uh, and it was very, very different. Yeah. Um, it was very, the interesting thing is, the interesting thing is um, with the girls then, and we're going back 10 or 15 years, their skill levels were absolutely excellent. Yeah. They, 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 were, they, they were really, the, the skill levels were very, very good indeed. But it was um, clearly much less, much less physical, yeah. um, and it was a little bit like football in a time warp. When if you look at old films of football going back many, many decades, football moved from A to B at a very, very slow pace, and that's how I saw the women's game then. But yeah. obviously, that has gradually improved. Did you manage with, them differently? With... Speak to them differently. Oh, oh yes, I think so. With, with, without question, with, without question, because mm -hmm. I was sort of feeling my way through it, and it was it was a new experience for me having a group of of, of girls to coach, and uh, yeah, in those circumstances, yeah, I think my my whole persona was rather different. So yeah. there was somewhere between between the ball ballroom and the dressing room, but yeah. it wasn't where the dressing room was previously in the in the conference when. You go into a dressing room and, uh, you know, I, I would always allow them to have a little bit of banter and they could say what they wanted about me for five minutes. <laughs> that's yeah. fine. Now it's my time and you do as I want. So well, with the girls, it's very, it is very different. And, <laughs> and, it, and in fairness today, Ed, it is very, very dif difficult mm. because you are coaching people um, from all countries, all ethnicity, uh, creed uh, it, it is so difficult not from time to time whether it be in the dressing room or with the press etc etc I think managers are under such pressure and scrutiny mm. that it's very easy to say something out of place it's unacceptable to someone yeah and I find that I find that a little bit unfortunate the the level of scrutiny on some people um when really um you know they've done such a good job in in, in other ways and it, it always seems that you know those couple of words out of place are highlighted at a time when they yeah. in their own time could be doing a lot right. of work for football for charity all sorts of things and they're not highlighted to the same degree and i yeah. find that it should, be, really. it should be evaluated on a on an average really shouldn't be rather than a, an acute moment i think <laughs> We, we, we should indeed. And I, 
I don't feel I don't feel um, some people have been represented in the way they should have been, you know, through yeah. through throughout. From from my personal experience yeah, yeah. as well, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, I've managed against lots of former Premiership footballers, and 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 a lot of them have been so charming and so good and helpful and 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 and, and pleasant. And then the first thing, because they've had such a profile. First thing that goes wrong, they've been absolutely pillarized, and yeah, feel for them really. Yeah, that, that, that holier than thou, that judgment culture, I think, often comes from a place of insecurity where we want to judge someone else harshly and we're worried about that coming back on us. There's a real kind of culture of that, the sort of mob mentality in lots of ways, particularly digitally and, and online media at the moment. It's fascinating with that, that, that women's football because I coached football in the USA for a little bit in summers, and that was great with, with girls. And it was very much accepted as a, a woman's sport, though. It's been a slower path in the, in the UK, and what's I'm fascinated by it. In some ways, it's insulting because Emma Hayes is the leading coach in the women's game. In a sense, you think the, the, the narrative that she has to prove herself by by managing in the, the men's game. But I would find that interesting because if you li listen to the accounts of Emma Hayes, how she interacts, some, similarly some, in some ways to Sir Alex Ferguson, actually, but how she knows people and gets the best out of different characters. I wonder if that emotional intelligence would play quite well in, in men's football if she came across just to get to know people. It's, it, it's, a, it's a really difficult one, Ed. I'm a little bit undecided on it because, because I've, I've had experience of women in the boardroom in business. Mm. And, you, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about, for example, you know, FTSE companies not having sufficient female representation. Yeah. And, um, and that... That is changing very, very slowly. But on, I've worked on a couple of boards with women, um, uh, venture capitalists, etc., and they have been sharp and very, very good. Mm -hmm. And the way in which one or two of them have handled themselves as well, um, mm -hmm. really, uh, they've been a match for any of the men on the yeah. board. So, yeah. so I see, I, 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 I've been sold on that environment. You know, I, I think in business generally, I think. The, a lot of women have worked so hard to get where they are and prove themselves that in many cases they do a better job than the men mm. um, and they can earn the respect that's required etc uh, by their mannerisms and I, I can see it there is just a sort of um, a, a dic difficult area I have in football where there's just a, a, it's difficult exactly to define <laughs> what my concern is yeah but I've always I've always felt very, very uncomfortable. I've always felt very uncomfortable over the last 20 years, often with some women referees and uh, assistant referees, um, because I've seen situations where, you know, whether people like it or not, you can't deny yeah. it. You can come off the football field, you can come off the football field, often it's not seen by the cameras, et cetera, et cetera. You can be in the tunnel or the waiting area and it can end up with all the lads fighting. Yeah. You know, you. You, you, you've had 90 minutes where you've yeah. been against each other and yeah. um, they, they, yeah. they, they can all be fighting. The language can be absolutely uh, disgusting. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's, yeah, it's quite, not a good quite, place to be. Quite a savage place, yeah, can be, yeah. When I see some women in the middle of that, that just, uh, to me, yeah, and the way I've been, that doesn't feel right. No, if you've, got a if you've got a daughter, there's things that you've seen that you probably, I, I think I wouldn't want to be her to be around, yeah. I've been in a situation, I've been in a situation where I've, um, I, well, I remember distinctly a game at Fleetwood 
Um, and I, the, the dugouts were on the far side of the ground in the, uh, to the, the changing rooms. And we made a mistake about a minute before half time to go one nil down. Mm. And, um, and by the time I'd walked across the pitch and got into the dressing room, everybody in the dressing room was fighting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it didn't happen regularly. It only happened once, once in a blue moon. But, it, yeah, yeah. you know, this, uh, we, 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 we so wanted to win that game. Um, uh, well, incidentally, Mickey Mellon was the manager and Jamie Vardy was playing. So, oh, wow. you know, we, we so wanted to win that game and we went 1-0 down a silly goal when we dominated a lot of the first half. And yeah, every, everyone's fighting now. You put yourself in that position. I remembered, you know, I went in there with, 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 with Lee Howells and, and we managed in, in our own way to, to, to sort it out. But, you know, a, a, a woman in those positions, difficult. Yeah, it's I difficult. Think they've got to have empathy with that sort of aggression that men get as well, some of that violence, yeah, that tendency for violence. To visualize. It's difficult to visualise. And I have to say, when you hear people talking about it and a lot of professionals next professionals um what they have to say about it often is not what i perceive them saying in private about it yeah that's, that's all i yeah yeah that the ability to, to speak candidly yeah. is, is difficult yeah yeah so i, I think we're, we're, we're getting different stories here that having been said you know the likes of Emma Hayes, I'm sure in ability, if you listen to her talking about football, mm. she has the knowledge, she has the knowledge to do the job. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, she, she clearly does. Whether many others do, I don't know. I don't know enough about sure. women's football throughout yeah, yeah. the world, but, but, but she does. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's an, it's, it, it's an interesting one and it will be, um, I suppose it sometime it will be tested. I think it has been tested previously. Didn't woman manage in professional football in France? I believe so. Yeah, I don't remember the detail. I know there are coaches in the American professional league. I don't think they're head coaches, but in sort of different sports, the NBA, which is maybe a little bit yeah. different. They have, they have physical fist fights there. But you're right, actually, that nuance of it and how you you handle those situations that are probably. Uh, aggressive. I remember a Sunday morning game where our captain was a lovely guy, but I think he'd been out the night before at a wedding and he was still drunk, which is quite often Sunday morning stuff. He got in an altercation with someone, got sent off, and then later on whacked someone who he thought was the same person in the change room, transpired he'd actually got the wrong person. <laughs> so that was a complete shambles. But anyone who's played Sunday morning football in particular, and of course, yeah. coaches and, and referees have to start at the grassroots level. So you think for young girls, that wouldn't potentially be a Potentially be much, yeah. although, although sometimes women's presence can be sort of civilizing and sanitizing. We act better around them than we do in, in, in private. So that could possibly be. A well, it can, it can be. It can be. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you've got decisions to make. Obviously, the management position is, is, is one thing. But, you know, you have, you have other people, you know, um, you have physios, etc. A lot of sites have women physios and yeah. the like. Um, and everyone's got different views on it, Ed. And, and I guess it depends on the individual a lot of the time and how that person ha handles themselves yeah. in, a, in a very male-dominated world. So, mm. Aidy, I wanted to ask you, what, what, how did business, you've talked about how the leadership in football dressing room helped you in business. How did business inform your, your football? I suppose just your accountancy background would have helped with numbers and, and, and I, I, things. I think the main thing, I think the main thing, Ed, is when I look at a football club at any level, at any level, so probably 
the premiership is the most difficult for me because they've become pretty sophisticated businesses. Yeah. And I've not really in detail looked at that level to see how they've grown because the business model of a club at that level now, mm. it would be fascinating to see where it's going because it, they are, they have been heavily dependent on, heavily dependent on the TV rights growing back, you know, since 94. And obviously in recent years, the job that Scudamore has done has been fantastic. And, and as a result of that, as a result of that, you know, they have the, these huge um, income streams from the TV, but they are now trying to make themselves more than that sustainable businesses. Yeah. So just take TV rights alone out. They're trying to make themselves sustainable businesses. And we've also got there the, the big question mark in the premiership and probably in the championship as well about streaming rights going forward. And, yeah. and, and because the big clubs see the massive value in the streaming rights, and um, all right, so, rather than collective, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so fascinating there. But at the other end of the scale, and this applies to clubs from basically the Southern League through probably to Div One. Yeah, they they need a model really, um, which is based on the development of a ground that makes their ground sustainable. So if there's something they've got. You know, you, you take it, you go up the road to Solihull Moors and watch them in the conference. And they got massive car parks where in the week they get car parking for, you know, Birmingham Airport and things like this, which gives them a, a very, very good income stream. Other people, other people have, a lot of clubs have looked at lower levels at the potential AstroTurf mm. um, route and to get a sustainable pitch and the facilities used all the time. Yeah, yeah. But clubs have got, you know, gyms, they've got hospitality facilities, etc. But it's in those lower levels, it's about making a sustainable, a sustainable football club based on your ground without, without really um, just looking at your, your income that you're getting through the gates. Mm. Because obviously the TV rights at those lower levels fall off a cliff and get less and less and less sub substantially. Yeah. So I guess what business has taught me about football is every football club I look at, I, you know, when people say, well, this club's doing well or that club's doing well, in my mind, immediately, I've got, I think of a business plan for that club. Where should that club be historically? Where should it be? What can it do to sustain itself as a football club? You know, what can it do with its ground? How many people can it get through, um, uh, the gates in, in the week to use that facility, et cetera, et cetera, to make it a sustainable football club before looking at the layer of football where, okay, how many gates, what gates can it get for football? Mm. And you always and, have that overarching ambition, don't you, AD, that drives it? That's the thing. It's always the, 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 the disappearing star over the, the hill. You want to chase, you want to be non-sustainable. You want to invest more yeah. than you are making it to get to the next it, level. Well, exactly, exactly, exactly that. And I'm a, and, and when, when I went when I went to Bath City, I, I I said to John when we went went in to talk talk to them, I said, look, we'll put a business plan together, a rudimentary rudimentary business plan, and um, we will say, right, okay, we've got to tell them what we're going to do in one year, in three years, in five years, and we did that, and actually, <laughs> actually, we achieved it to the day. We, on five years to the day, we I got promoted with. Lee Howells to conference. That's what we said we do in five years. 
So we got two promotions in that time. But but what we didn't have control of, that was the football business plan. But what we didn't have control of was the business behind it. Yeah. And, and you've got this history in football. You've got this history in football of people, local businessmen made good, who've taken on the football club. And when the gates haven't sufficed to, to, to develop the team, they put money in themselves mm. to make that gap. And that happened for years and years and years, I, I guess decades, you know, going back to, you know, yeah. early last it's happened, you know, year, years and years and years ago. I, 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 there was a documentary last year I watched in, um, not a documentary, uh, um, uh, on Netflix. They, they were yeah. talking about early years of football with Old Etonians, Blackburn Rovers and Darwin <laughs> and whatever. And the, the, the guys in the mills were doing it at that time. So, um, yeah, so that, that's what's happened, you know, filling that gap. But then suddenly in the, in the 80s, in the 80s, you know, with um, uh, Doug Ellis at Villa and the Edwards family at United and whatever, they began to actually see that there was a real business that you could make here out of a football club. Yeah. And, and obviously the Premier League was some time in coming and they could see that coming when there was going to be much greater television rights, much greater advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And then saw the value of that, the multiple in the value of the company. And of course, a few people like those families did very, very well. Yeah. And then you've got, um, you've got countries buying clubs now as well, effectively at Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain and, and their, their motives aren't money, they're, they're exposure or whatever it is. It's, a, it's different. No, absolutely. So, so the, the model suddenly in the late 80s, early 90s, the model began to change. And, and suddenly, at the top end of the league, they became, started becoming sophisticated businesses. Mm. But unfortunately, as they did that in the Premiership, a lot of the rest of the EFL, the, the rest of the 92, got a little bit left behind in many cases because they were still doing it the old way, just filling, filling the gaps with the money yeah. needed many people as they could with a bit of advertising, a bit of hospitality, without really saying, look, ripping this business apart, putting a structure in place and saying, right, what do we need to make from every facet of the club? And therefore, what can we afford? And then gradually grow your business from the bottom upwards. They were looking at the top and saying, we want to compete with these people. That's the wage we yeah. need to yeah. have. Of course, at the bottom, there'd be an empty hole. And so, so what... What it taught me more than anything else in looking at football generally, I always, if I look at a football club and someone, and a few people have said to me in the last couple of years, would you be interested in managing here or there? I'm only interested in a non-league club if I can get it in the football league. And, mm. and it doesn't depend on what they've got now, not the players they've got now or the supporters they've got now. It depends on the structure of the club and what, what revenue they're generating. Yeah. And if you see that that is sustainable we can add to that and build on that gradually over three or four years. And then as a result of that, you will have a team that will win yeah. uh, Conference South, will win National League, win the Football League, in the way, in the way, very slowly, that, say, Cheltenham Town did many years ago. What, what, with, your, uh, yeah. What's your read on Salford City quickly? Because that's a big project. It's got a big area in Manchester, hasn't it? There's obviously a lot of competing clubs around Manchester as well because they've got the Manchester United ex-old boys there as part of the um, the ownership contingent do you feel that they have the potential to grow and grow 
I'm not really sure because I'm not really sure because I think they're literally in the shadow of such a such a massive club. Mm. Um, you've already had the break off of FC United, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And um, just the local demographics. I mean, already from where they are, from where they are in the league, they're not really they're not really building a huge fan base no. in the early years. Doesn't seem to me. You know, if you look at their gates on a regular basis, it's a little bit, some clubs, it's difficult for various reasons. If you look locally, just up the road from me here, we've got Forest Green Rovers and, and they've done very, very well. Um, mm. You know, top, top, top of Div 1. But I went to watch a game the other 2,000 people there. And it, so it just purely from what they're doing on the field, it is, it is from their fan base, it's not sustainable. And I do wonder about Salford City. I mean, obviously, huge amounts of money have gone in there. Don't let's kid ourselves. Yeah. You know, if you look at the players they've signed year in, year out so far over the last four or five years, and and that with that amount of money they get put in there, they're they're going to be they're going to be successful. But there comes a time if you can't build your fan base, you think, Why? you know, is, yeah. is is this worthwhile? Because whoever the benefactor is, when that runs out, and you often get one or two benefactors, and you've got in in this case, you've got one major benefactor and you've got sort of five X famous players or whatever. Um, I do wonder about the sustainability of the project because when they when they get a little bit older, older, who is there to come in? Whereas clubs in other areas, clubs in other areas, you know, just naming someone who's done well in the last few years. Look how well Lincoln City have done. They were in the conference when I was in there, played against them. And yeah. you always thought, you know, there's quite a good fan base here. But they were just underachieving. They've been bad, really badly managed on the field and probably off the field as well. And and now suddenly they're getting gates of seven, eight, nine, ten thousand, and they're doing really well in Div One. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, that potential for in, in trying to. I think for owners who invest a lot of money, it's not always a monetary come out they want. They want a sort of uh, an ego. They want an adulation. I think Abramovich has had that at Chelsea, whereas you say with Salford, that isn't forthcoming. What what is the the outcome? For me, yeah thing ed at the moment actually is watching clubs i, I see clubs all the all, all the time right through the leagues that you think this is not sustainable what they're doing i mean lo locally down the road here you know gosh um at bristol rovers they, they've invested in huge number of players over the last year and it hasn't made them successful they put a lot of money into it the chairman um in that respect but what he's doing just doesn't appear Mm. doesn't appear to be sustainable then on the other end of the scale you get someone like Burnley or West Brom who mm. have yo-yoed for years between the premiership and the championship and it seems as though they've said to themselves look that is our limit on what we're going to spend under our business plan and they've stuck to that rigidly yeah. and they know if they go down they still get their parachute payments they've got a good chance of getting back up in the next couple of years and all the time they're building and building a financial base. Yeah. You can see that growing, but with a lot of clubs, you just can't see that level of detailed planning. No, it's a complicated world. But finally, Ada, you still love it, don't you? Because you're at Cheltenham, you're keen to do some scouting. It's clearly for you, this isn't a monetary goal at all. You're just, you'd love being connected with the game. I, I Well, I love watching the football. I watch it at all levels, um, uh, both... Um, on the on the television and and going going to games at all levels, yeah, I I, I really enjoy it. But there's nothing really I think um, like really close involvement. So and you can only get that either by managing a coach and being in the dressing room or otherwise supporting 
supporting your your club and everyone has one club Bristol so. City for you I mean they should Bristol be in the Prem, they should be in the Premier League shouldn't they based on fan base they, they 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 should they've had good opportunities I think I think in lots of ways they've been so in spite of having a very very good owner in Steve Lansdowne they've been very mismanaged over the years I think on on so many occasions um but you you have to remember the underlying everything they do they do have a very vibrant city a city that's growing in population very rapidly which is very wealthy uh which is very wealthy and it's some stage surely someone must get that club right and that'd be great to see Aidy. really appreciate sort of picking your brains on the podcast and your time it's a, it's a fascinating journey and it's just wonderful i think that throughout it all you have retained that passion and it was evident when i sat next to you at wadden road and i'm sure it will be in the, the coming months as years and i know you, you like a bit of cricket as well but thank you for your time Aidy. really appreciate it thanks ed thank you very much fascinating man Aidy Britton, still keen to get out there, scout football, watch football. As I say, I met him at Wadden Road through a mutual friend, Chris Coley, who's a local sort of sports philanthropist and passionate sportsman rooted in Gloucestershire sport. And just Aidy's passion. And you kind of wonder if that joy, that unadulterated love he still holds for football, and I know cricket as well, and, and dare say a few other sports, but I wonder whether that would have been diminished if he'd done football management as a full-time job with the extrinsic rewards so paramount, whereas for him it was very much a labour of love, those intrinsic rewards, those values. So really cool to get his uh, his thoughts as well. Look out for him at Games in Gloucestershire if you're <clears throat> a local fan. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. Get in touch with uh, Jason and his team, Jason Briggs and his team at Bang Olufsen Cheltenham. As I say, can offer you a bespoke vision solution, not necessarily just Bang Olufsen's fine equipment, but whatever suits your vision and budget through their sister company, Serene AV. And for Cytoplan, if you're looking to optimise your immunity, particularly around vitamin D, and do look out in the coming weeks for that podcast with my father, Dr. Mark Draper, on that subject and how important. I think it's almost a consensus now to to supplement in the northern hemisphere over the winter months when there's no uv bouncing around very watery sunshine if any and i'm going to depress myself and you probably but we'll look out for that podcast with him and, and outlining the types of vitamin d supplementation but in the meantime if you're looking to optimize your immunity at cytoplan.co.uk you can get a discount with the podcast and the code is draper 10 r d-r-a-p-e-r all capital letters numerals one zero and the capital letter r and of the attic box audio idea the idea of recording a quality conversation of me coming out as a national broadcaster for nearly 20 years dare i say it now um to speak to a loved one about their life story from childhood to the modern time and just in a relaxed form just a conversation a chat but covering you know their recollections of the key moments of their life the key people and not anything again that's factual they have to check dates or anything it's just purely a free form chat and a conversation and we will provide a, a lovely transcript afterwards of the conversation with pictures that that, that mirror what they're talking about that reflect and, and color what they're talking about at that particular time of the conversation and a, a lovely package and a quality audio recording anyway just an idea you can check it out at drapermedia.co.uk and look at the attic box audio page there thank you for listening guys appreciate it if you did enjoy it please pass it on to a friend refer on social media or just word of mouth so powerful isn't it um and rate it on iTunes and other platforms you're listening on. That'd be fantastic too. Appreciate your time. Thank you and goodbye for now.